Yeah, this is Frank Bill, author of Donnybrook, and I'm doing a fucking awesome podcast with the guys over at Booked. Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snudden. Welcome to a special two-part um, episode. Um, you know, it's been God, probably like six weeks since we posted some kind of reading, hasn't it? <laughs> it wasn't ready for you to talk. <laughs> it just caused chaos at my desk. What are you, like, fucking sweeping like up your place? Like, oh, shit. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a little bit. <laughs> Since November, the, uh, the beginning of uh, no, I'm sorry, it's the beginning of September. September sixth, we were at uh, City Lit Books for the uh, reading with uh, Brandon Teets and those guys. Yep. So this is our first. So we've been to a, a few noir at the bars, but this is the first time where we are actually part of the marquee, which is super, super fucking cool. Thank you, big thank you to Jake Hinkson for allowing us to not just to record this and bring it to you guys, but to MC. Because that requires very little work, and we like very little work. That's right, but we but it, it's low work, high praise. Because at the end, someone said, "Great job," and I was like, "Thanks," but we didn't really do anything. We did nothing. We did what we always do. We just make shit up off the top of our heads and talk about it. So, yeah. Um, this evening, you'll be hearing we're doing this a little bit out of order so that the episodes are um, timed a little better. So this evening, you'll be hearing three readers. You will be hearing from Kevin Helmick, Jay Kingston, and Frank Wheeler Jr. Um, and we're going to kick it off here um, in a minute with uh, with good friend of the show, Kevin Helmick. Yes, but before the actual first, before Kevin starts it off, you are going to hear uh, Jay Kingston, the organizer of the event, come up and talk a little bit about um, starting the Noir Bar Chicago, which he hopes to be an ongoing thing, and so do we. Um, and then we get up there, and I do a little bit of history of Noir at the Bar as well. Hopefully an accurate history, but if there's anything we know about history is um, whoever wins gets to write it the way they want to or something like that, right? Something like that. Yep, absolutely. I was, I'm glad you said that, because if not, I was going to say that when you said something about history, and yeah. Um, I just stand around looking handsome the whole time. That's right. As you'll see. As you <laughs> All right, without further ado, here is Kevin Helmick, followed by Jake Hinkson and Frank Wheeler Jr. Welcome, all of you, to Noir at the Bar Chicago. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am Jake Hinkson. I'm going to be one of the readers tonight, and I was also one of the people who helped set this up. Um, this is the first time we're going to have it. This is, they actually did a noir at the bar uh, here in Chicago over a year ago, but this is the first one at a at a real bar at Quenchers. So thanks to the folks at Quenchers uh, for helping us set this up, uh, and we'll get started. I'm going to bring up our MCs for the evening. Um, these guys are the host of the Booked Podcast, um, Rob Olson and Livia Sned. Thanks. As Jake said, I'm Livia Snedden. This is Rob Olson. My co-host, Rob. And we host Crime Wave and the Booked Podcast. So if you're into crime fiction, that's another place you can go. That's mostly fiction story. It's all fiction stories that are crime-related. So um, We've been doing Booked for three and a half years now. Um, and we've had the privilege to attend several Noir at the Bar events, record some of them to bring to our listeners. And this is going to be our first time actually kind of being officially a part of one. So... Um, Rob, as most people here may not know, is uh, is a historian of sorts. Is going to give you a brief little bit about the history of noir at the bar. So this is uh, the information I've gathered just from like uh, face primarily Facebook messages with a bunch of people who are involved with noir at the bar. It was originally started by a gentleman named Peter Vizovsky. Gentleman may or may not be the right uh, word to apply to him, but anyway, uh, in Philadelphia, and it started out as like a series of events where there would be an author who read, but also uh, would also be uh, interviewed as well. And then um, at some point, Scott Phillips, the author, was talking to Jedediah Ayers, who are both uh, St. Louis natives, and uh, Scott was telling Jed about this event that he was a part of in, in uh, Philadelphia? I think it's Philadelphia. I've been drinking. Uh, and Jed said, well, hey, we could do something like that. And Scott said, well, it's kind of Peter's thing. And Scott said, fuck Peter Rozovsky. And that's kind of how it started. Uh, it got very popular then in St. Louis. And, and uh, Jed had a ton of 
like some of the best crime authors I've ever read, a, a huge selection of different people uh, doing Noir at the Bar events in St. Louis, and then since then it kind of just caught fire, and it's, um, I mean, it's, it's been taking place all over the country in the, in the United States as well as Canada, uh, uh, New York. There are other countries, yeah. Country. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, one of those European countries, uh, it's, it's all over the place, so it's pretty much caught fire. Um, it has not yet been an institution in Chicago, so I was very excited when uh, actually Kent put this on my radar, Kent Gowron, uh, and um, I reached out to, uh, to Jake right away, and I was like, hey, what can we do to help out? So that's why we are here, because I love North Bar so much that we had to be involved. So, yeah. All right, so um, a couple of caveats. We are recording this for our podcast. Dozens of people in three countries <laughs> in New York may hear the things you say this evening. <clears throat> We're going to come up periodically between the readers. You're going to have five readers this evening. We are going to have a short break in the middle for refreshments or smokers or bathroom breaks or whatever. So our next reader is Kevin Helmick. Kevin is from Lake Villa, Illinois. His books include Clovis Point, Sebastian Cross, Heartland Gothic, and just released this summer, The Rain King. A novella, Driving Alone, was also re-released this spring and includes a collection of new and previously published short stories. Give it up for Mr. Helmick. Thanks, people. Thanks for coming out. I was going to read something different tonight, but uh, I got a request for this. This was a short story that was published a couple years ago in... Uh, New York at the Bar, Volume 2. This is called Number 7, Valentine. He had heard about the bank from a cellmate, Jim Block, back in Folsom. He heard it over and over, in fact, for five fucking years, like a broken goddamn record. It was all he talked about. Amboy, this little desert town and this secret bank, all fat, busting at the seams like some sexy broad just waiting to be fucked. It was a holding stop for cash from Vegas to L.A., and how when he got out, he was going to head out there and fuck her proper-like, but he didn't get out. He got, sh got himself fucked instead. Kidney shanked out in the yard, and Joey just watched it all go down. Set it up, in fact. So when Joey made parole, he decided to drive out there, check it out himself. He borrowed his sister's 54 Bel Air for a few hours two days before, headed out into the Mojave Desert. He had the top down, radio blasted, killing small animals along the way. He smoked two packs, jacked off twice, and his lucky flask was bone dry before he'd even got to Barstow. When he finally passed the bullet-ridden welcome sign for Amboy, the car started to overheat and chug. Shit, he screamed as he coasted into the crossroads at the center of town. It rolled to a stop in front of Jerry Sinclair at the engine, gave out and wheezed and died. Joey got out and walked to the front of the car and tried to open the hood, but it was hot, frying pan, hot as a frying pan, and burned his hand the second he touched it. God damn it, he danced up and down, shaking his pain away, and used the tail of his blazer as a rag to get it open. The steam rolled out and covered him. The engine hissed and squealed like a dying cat. He squinted into the dark of the open overhead doors. Hey, need some fucking help out here. Spying up and down the empty two lanes and back into the garage, he slapped the fender a couple of times with his hand. Hello? Then he saw her, having a smoke outside the door of a diner attached to the side, but pushed back about 30 feet from the station. She stood maybe 6'2", stunning blonde Amazon, hourglass, in a skin-tight uniform dress, cowboy boots with her hair pulled back loose, just standing there smoking, watching him with her hand on her hip. Holy Christ, he said under his breath. Anybody working in here? He shouted to her. She just smiled, flicked her cigarette, and went inside. Joey fished his pockets for his lucky strikes in his zippo. He headed toward the station. Hey! He lit one in. He lit one and leaned inside. He could hear a whiny cowboy singing from a transistor radio hanging on the wall. Hey, I got a fucking emergency out here. Emergency, he said, poking his head out from under a hood. You Jerry? No. Jerry around? He looked around and grinned. I don't see him. Well, can you take a look at my car? Bill. Love it. What? Name's Bill. Well, good for you. The car? He zipped up his coveralls, said Jerry on the name tag, and strolled toward Joey. Slow and without panic, he stretched his hand 
And Joey looked at the greasy paw like it was a diseased piece of meat all covered in blood or transmission fluid or something. It's right out here, he said, and walked back toward the car. Joey got back to the car what felt like two days before Bill. He stood and waved his hands toward the engine a couple of times like an angry game show host. He paced in a circle while he waited and noticed the bank across the street with the door wide open, looking recently abandoned, broke. Fuck, he whispered. Take it easy now. I'm sure it ain't all that, Bill said when he got there. He was a handsome man out in the sun in a blockish way. He looked familiar, too, and was obviously drained of ambition. No, that's not... No, look at this. I think, I think the motor's fried. Bill leaned in, sniffed, and looked around the engine... Think the motor's fried. No shit, Sherlock. Can you fix it? Well, now I got a few ahead of you. I'd have to get into it, see what's going on. Joey looked around the deserted ghost town and laughed. A few ahead of me? You serious? That's fucking swell. We had a hundred bucks. He had a hundred bucks to his name that he lifted from his sister's purse. He remembered the waitress and saw the flagstaff sign in the window of the diner. Well, I need a drink while you're seeing about it. They got beer in there? Uh, Tilly's? Um, yeah, that's my wife's place. Yeah, I expect they got a beer in there. Your wife? That's right, my wife. He bit his bottom lip and looked at the diner. Okay, then, Joey said, walking away. I'll be back. Just get me the fuck out of here. See what I can do, he said, and started his slow walk back toward the station. Joey looked back and stopped. Jerry, the car. It's Bill. Whatever. Got to get a screwdriver, he grinned and stood in place. Fuck, Joey went on and pulled the door of the diner, and she stood there smiling, waiting, licking her ruby lips. He looked, he looked her up and down the counter at the empty stools. Hey, stranger. Hey, yourself, doll, you Tilly? Shirley. Shirley? Of course, never mind, he said, and took a stool and laid his cigarettes on the counter. You got a beer? I could use a cold one. You want a beer? I do, Shirley. I would like a beer very much. She leaned behind her, slow and deliberate, not taking her blue eyes off him, and came back with a bottle. She leaned forward, and her cleavage poured out in Joey's face as she popped the top under the counter. She smiled and laughed a little. What brings you around these parts, strangers? You do, doll. You bring me around, doll. She breathed in deep. Her smile went away, and sex starved look desperation swept over her face. What's your name, sweetie? Valentine. Joey Valentine. Is that right? You want to be my Valentine, Joey? He looked over his shoulder at the station. Ain't that your husband over there, Jerry? You mean Bill? Oh, fuck him. It's a marriage of convenience. Convenience? Yeah, well, we got an understanding about things. Is that right? Yeah, well, we're real open-minded. Joey smiled and felt the swelling in his pants as she leaned over him and swung her tits and ass back and forth in perfect seductive rhythm. He reached down, adjusted himself. You are one sexy dish. Why don't you come on in the back here, Joey? Warm you up some peach pie, huh? Joey knocked over the beer getting up, climbed the counter, and they crashed together, kissed and groped and squeezed at one another like some kind of soft fight. And they made their way to the breezeway of the kitchen. She slapped his face hard, pushed him away, and then clawed him back. She dropped to her knees, pulled at his buckle, ripped his pants down around his knees, and went to work with a mission. Joey leaned back on the stove and closed his eyes to the ceiling and said, holy shit. He grabbed her head and she pushed. I can't believe you guys talked me into reading this. <laughs> he grabbed her head and she pushed his hand away and and just as he was ready to blow, she pulled off and looked at him, grinning. What the fuck? No, he said, and started finishing himself. He pulled his hands away. She pulled his hands away, laughed, and came up from somewhere with a wooden spoon and whacked his cock twice. <laughs> oh, ouch, you bitch, you crazy fucking bitch. What the fuck? You, you like that, Joey? She whacked it again, and he blew his load all over the cooler and stove, the pink tile floor, and she laughed. She stood up, spun her around, twisted her fist in his hair, and pulled her dress up. He slapped her ass and went at it hard as she screamed maniacally and threw her pans and pots and cooking utensils across the kitchen. Jerry and Bill had to hear it. Jerry or Bill had to hear it, he thought. He reached around and shoved his fingers in her mouth to shut her up while he hurried. 
You are some kind of dame, he said, and the sweat rolled down his chest. He finished up, leaned back against the stove, and pulled the pants up with one hand, wiped his brow with the other. Shirley turned around and dropped to her knees, pulling at Joey's belt again. No, fuck, shit, we're going to get caught. I don't care, she said, and stood towering over him. She grabbed his face and shoved her fingers so far down his throat he choked and he, he shook his head away. What the fuck? You are one crazy bitch. He pulled away, finished pulling his pants up, and started walking. She pulled at his shirt tail, spanking him hard with that wooden spoon as he rolled over the counter and onto the stool. Joey sat, lit a smoke, breathed in deep, and let it out slow as Shirley set another beer on the counter. He looked at her, combed his hair back with his fingers, and smiled. Thanks for that. Shit. She smiled her crazy little smile. You're a lot of man down there, Valentine. Yeah, well, it's been a while. Joey already started planning his exit. He knew he had to, had to because he wasn't done, and he needed some distance. She wasn't done, and he needed some distance. Bill or Jerry or whoever could walk in any time, and who knows? He might be just as fucking crazy as she was. But Joey didn't take him for stupid. And the atmosphere reeked of sex. I'm going to need a place for the night while Jerry fixes my car. You know a place like that? That's Bill, she said, pointing one long red fingernail in that direction. Right, whatever. Is there a motel close? There's a boarding house down the street, she raised her eyebrows. Hourly rates. Look, I like you and all, but I, I can't be messing around with no married woman. Now you tell me. I didn't stop you a minute ago. What, what can I say? I'm a weak man, and you're some looker, that, but that's it. Done is done. Fine, then. She straightened up. Two dollars for the beer. Pies on the house. Jo Joey, looked at, <laughs> Joey looked at her and pursed his lips. That's cute. Beer's 50 cents in L.A., and that's in a classy joint. This ain't L.A., Toto. He crushed out his cigarette, finished the beer, and threw a five on the counter. She slid it up and shoved it between her tits. I better go check on that car, he said. Yeah, you go do that, baby. I'll be right here in case you get hungry. He hesitated as if he had helped him. He hesitated as if he had helped his sudden walk out and set the bottle down again. All right, then. All right, then, she said and smiled, but Joey still lingered. For some reason, he felt like kissing her goodbye or saying something else, but he shook it off and walked out the door. I'll see you. Yeah, she said, I'll see you around, Valentine. He walked back to the station, tucking in the shirt as the sun was going down. Car was in the same place as he left it. He looked inside. Jerry? Bill, he said from the lawn chair in the, by the radio. Right. Well, what's the gist? Is it fixed? He scratched the side of his neck. Well, it's the water pump shot, and the radiator hose blown. Parts won't be in till morning. Just fucking swell. What, what are we looking at? Parts, labor, about three, I'd say. Hundred? Joey panicked a little. It's a fucking Chevy. Well, it's the only fucking Chevy for a hundred miles. You're welcome to take your business elsewhere. <laughs> elsewhere? There is no elsewhere. And you know it. Whatever. It's fine. I'll get a room down here before it closes, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm going to need a d deposit, a little something. Deposit? This is a fucking highway robbery, Jerry. It's Bill. And, yeah, half down's the usual. Fifty, Joey said. But the cigarette dangling from his lips, smoke stinging his eyes, he dug down deep in his pocket a little sideways and counted it out to himself. He turned back and handed it over. Thank you, sure, sir. Pleasure. Joey took a deep breath as he shoved what was left of his pocket, and he was losing money by the minute now. I'll stop by in the morning. Better hurry, he laughed, searching his belly, scratching his belly as he pulled a pint of old Harper's from his pocket and chugged. Surely take care of you over there? Huh? Yeah, yeah, fine. Joey started walking away. That bitch has got a screw loose, just so you know. Right, I, I wouldn't know about that, he said, walking away fast. Joey crossed the street and glanced in the open door of the bank where paper and other trash lingered, littered about the floor and blew in the desert breeze. It seemed everyone just walked out that day. He pulled out his handkerchief and wiped the sweat from his face. Some shit would have to go down to get the car back and get the hell out. 
He looked around for ideas, opportunities, and saw none. Fuck, he mumbled to himself as he went on. Drove all the way, middle goddamn desert for a piece of ass shit. He opened the door of the boarding house and walked in, but nobody was behind the desk. He rang the bell persistently, and still no one showed. Need a room, he shouted. Hello? There was a sign on the wall there where, with the rates written and scribbled in ballpoint pen, 10 shit. In L.A., he started in bitching but didn't bother to finish. He threw a 10 down, spun the register book around, and signed his name. He slid behind the desk to the key rack and pulled off number seven, his lucky number, and marched up the stairs. He unlocked the door and threw himself on the bed in a cloud of dust. He coughed, shit. Got back up, peeled off his sweaty clothes, washed them out in the sink, hung them up, and turned on the shower. The hot water handle was broke off, so he hurried, taking in short, deep breaths during the, doing the Eskimo dance as he washed. Oh, God, oh, shit, oh, Christ, he grabbed a, he grabbed a towel and then that smelled like a camel's ass and dried off with a, was sweating again before he was done. Night had come, and he'd sat on the edge of the bed in his underwear and banged on the radio that would light up with each smack, but nothing would come out. He gave up and threw it against the wall and laid down and thought about Shirley. She hadn't really left his mind. He could smell her still and feel them firm curves of flesh. He felt himself getting aroused again, but a sudden pounding scared it away. He looked at the door. Who is it? No answer. More knocking. His pants were dry enough, so he slipped them on and put, put on an ear to the door, and it bounced against the side of his face with a series of sudden thud. All right, all right. He opened the door, and Shirley stood in the hall with a light behind her shined through her thin cotton house dress that at two sizes too small looked like it was about to rip out at the seams if, he, if she breathed. She was, a sport, she was sporting a shiner, too. Oh, no, no. What the fuck are you doing here? Jerry's going Jerry's gonna to know. It's Bill. Whatever. He, he do that to you? Yeah, I don't care, though. She pushed, she, put, she pushed her away and she pushed her way in, slammed the door, and grabbed Joey by the balls and buried his tongue deep down his throat. She bit onto his bottom lip so hard he tasted the warm copper of blood on his tongue. She pulled back and let go. He's going he's gonna to fuck you on the car. No shit. Get on, the, get on the bed. Surely, no. Get on the fucking bed now. She, she took hold of his crotch and squeezed. Okay, all right, all right. Just take it easy. He did what he was told for the next three hours while she had her sadistic way with every part of his body. She did things he had never even heard of with the skill and vigor of a sexual surgeon. When they were through, exhausted, soaked, he laid his head in her massive breast like a little boy in love. His whole body ached, his balls ached, his cock ached. His cock was chewed and his asshole was torn and hurt. He thought about that and he said, I've never felt this way over abroad, Shirley. <laughs> she breathed in, stirred a little, became she breathed in, stirred a little, became restless, and finally broke the silence. Get me out of here, Joey. I can't take him anymore. Take me with you. Um, yeah, I, I can't even pay for the fucking car, baby. You don't have to. He's got money in his safe. He's a lot of money. We could kill him. Joey's eyes sprang open. What? Yeah, he's got like fifty thousand, maybe more. Sound of the money distracted him for a second. After all, it was why he came to the desert shithole in the first place. He rolled over. I've done a lot of shit, but I ain't no killer. She rolled, on, she rolled on her side to face him. It's easy. It'd be real easy. Besides, don't you like me? What? what? How's that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, doll. Well, Joey, no matter how much money he said it'd be, it'll be more tomorrow and more the next day. You'll end up losing the car and walking out of here. He does it to everybody that breaks down here. Joey thought it over. 50000 huh? More. And me. You get me, Joey, she said, and reached over and twisted his nipple till her fingers turned white. Ow, fuck. Easy, doll. He had no intentions of killing anybody, but she wasn't the kind of girl who settled for no, and he needed to heal a bit before he said it. Brace for hell. So he proceeded to think about it. The money, that is. He came here to roll a bank. But a station with that kind of lettuce 
would do just as well. And this broad, Jesus, the cons they could pull in L.A. or Vegas, with that piece of ass leading in, it reeled the degenerate mind. Where's the money, he said to the ceiling. She purred, rolled over, and started grinding herself on his leg. The safe, it's in the back. Combination? Key, keeps it in his pocket. She reached down, squeezing him again. Please, baby, I gotta think. I'll sleep on it. Come up with a plan. You better go through. You better go, though, so he don't get his ears up. Gonna need a gun. I'll get one, she said. I keep one at the diner. I'll bring it over in the morning, early. He'll have to have time to fix the car, though, first, okay? I fucking love you, you piece of shit, she said. She climbed on top of Joey, and her breast swung wildly in his face. She grabbed... She grabbed his hair, yanked, and kissed him hard, long and hard, biting his lip again until he grunted under the pain. She pushed, off, she pushed off his face, got up, and walked across the room like she owned it. She picked up her dress from the back of the chair, and he watched her magnificence in the moonlight as she shim, shimmied in, in, down over her hips. You are some piece of work, doll. She just smiled and whispered, Tomorrow, blew a kiss and slammed the door. I think I probably used up my time. But if you want to, you want to know the end of that story, it's right over here. So as Kevin mentioned, you can uh, read the rest of that story in uh, his collection, Kevin Helmick, My Life and Times, an autobiography. Um, so two things I have to say about that. First of all, I've read most of Kevin's work, and um, although I love this story, it's not really indicative of his normal style. <laughs> but I do think that it's what noir at the bar is about. So when your friends, you tell your friends, hey, I'm going to a reading, and they think literary stuffy event, recount some of that story <laughs> to them. So that's, that's what makes noir at the bar great. Thank you, Kevin. All right, our next reader is your organizer for this event, Jake Hinkson. Uh, we're going to have Jake up, and then we're going to take a, a little intermission after that. Uh, here's a little quick bio for Jake. He's the author of four books, including the newly released The Big Ugly. He has written for Mystery Scene and Noir City. His novel, excuse me, his novels Helen Church Street and The Posthumous Man are being released in French editions next year. He lives in Chicago. Jake Hinkson. Thank you. Um, this story I'm going to read um, was came out in a collection um, called Noir Riot, which was put together by the people who run Noir Con in Philadelphia. And it is called Casual Encounter. The Craigslist thing started innocently. At that time, I was working as a tech writer for a company that designs educational software, and I needed something to do in my spare time. Like every other bored, stumbling toward middle-aged married white guy, I decided I would learn to play the guitar. I went on Craigslist to, find, Craigslist to find a cheap one, but then I drifted over to the men seeking women section, just to see what it was like. I rooted around in there for a few days, and then I took the leap into the section for casual encounters. It was a crazy place to be, and it felt like being in a place rather than just sitting on a couch looking at a screen. It was, simply put, a place where people were hunting for sex. Even if you figured if 99% of the posts were bullshit, that still left 1% of an endless ocean of indecency. And it was raw. People weren't coy. They wanted to fuck in the park at night. They wanted to cheat on their spouses. Women wanted to fuck in the broom closet at work, in public places during business hours, in restrooms, at random gas stations. Some didn't care what you looked like. Some even wanted fat guys. I figured I'd post an ad on a lark. What the hell? It was all in fun. I'd never actually do it. And I really seriously thought I never would. How could I? Meet a stranger for sex? I'd had sex with two people in my life. I'd just post the ad to get off on the thrill of doing it. And it worked. Just posting the damn thing sent a cocaine jolt through my body. Guy in his 20s looking for a high school or college girl for sexy fun times. Let's get crazy. I felt like an idiot writing it. It sounds idiotic. Hell, it is idiotic. But that's how people talk on there. 
That kind of asinine language is shorthand for I'm dead serious about this. I'm not trying to be charming. Contact me if you want to get fucked. A few days passed. Nothing happened. I actually really got depressed about it for a day or two. I checked in every five minutes and nothing. I couldn't even get an anonymous stranger to flirt with me on the internet. What kind of loser fails to do that? And I didn't need the rejection right then. My marriage was barely functioning after my wife had had an affair the previous year. She was a shift manager at Barnes & Noble, and the dude she'd fucked was a waiter at a Mexican restaurant in the strip mall. They went to a motel and put it on our credit card. Since she usually paid that bill, she thought I'd never see it. The motel made a mistake, though, and charged her three times for the same visit. Computer error. That same afternoon, I was going through the drive-thru at KFC without any cash and had to use my card. When it was declined, I called Visa and some bored call center operator in Bangladesh told me in so many words that my wife was cheating on me. We gotten through that, by which I mean the guy dumped her and she stayed with me. And I tried not to hold it against her. I mean, I would have banged a waitress in a motel. I'm sure I would have. I'd stayed faithful because I didn't have any other choice. But then... A girl named Tracy wrote me back on Craigslist and asked me what I was up to. My stomach dropped. I wrote back and said, nothing. What about you? And that's how it began. It went on for days. She was interested. She'd had sex like this before, she said, and she loved it. Nothing serious, just some fun. She asked how big my dick was. She asked if she could meet me. Then she said she was 15. When I read those words, some distant door slammed shut. I was alone, but my face started burning like the whole world was watching me. I wasn't sure how I got there. To be honest and upfront with her, I told Tracy I was 32. Asked if that was cool. She said it was. The last guy was 40, she said. She likes older guys. I debated it. It was crazy. But she'd had experience, maybe even more than me. Plus, all the kids are doing it these days, right? We decided to meet the next day. My wife would be at work. Perfect. I pick up Tracy. We find a place. After I Google Mac the nearest park, I could barely sleep. At midnight, I had diarrhea. For the rest of the night, I just stared out the wind, at the shadows at the, on the ceiling and listened to my, af- my wife's acid reflux. The next morning, I got up, locked the bathroom door, and jerked off. I thought that would diminish the desire to meet Tracy, but it didn't. After my wife left for work, I took a shower. I clipped my nose hairs and my fingernails. I put on clean clothes and splashed on some cologne that was a seven-year-old Christmas present for my mother-in-law. Then I drove over to the park. I rode in silence. I've never been so scared as anything in my life as I was that first time. I rode around the park. Every girl seemed to be Tracy. She was a brunette with brown eyes. I saw half a dozen girls who fit that description, but she said she'd be wearing a green skirt and a red tank top. No Tracy. I drove around for an hour. No Tracy. I got out, walked around, and went back to my car and went home. Her message was waiting for me. She chickened out. I told her I thought she wanted this. We talked about it, and after a while, we agreed to meet again. This time, she said she'd meet me at the motel. The next day, I wasn't as scared. You can't build up the same rush again. I was anxious, but my nerves had been shot the day before. I didn't jerk off this time either. As I was leaving, my wife was sitting at the kitchen table staring at her laptop. I told her I was going to the mall to see if GameStop had the new whatever. And she didn't look up from her screen. I might call you later to tell you to pick up some stuff at the grocery store, she said. She double-clicked on something. Make sure you leave your phone on. Why would I have my phone off, I said. What? I said, why would I turn my phone off? She frowned at the screen and clicked on something. Just make sure you leave it on, she said. I said okay and left. I zipped through the city streets. I sped the whole way. I caught every yellow light. I got there at noon. I'd check in, text her, and Tracy would show up 10 minutes later. At the front, an elderly Asian man in a Superman t-shirt was working the counter. He took my card. Since my wife's affair, I'd been in charge of the credit cards. Karma's a bitch. The old man took down my information. He gave me a key attached to a piece of plastic with a faded number 27 on it. I walked outside. Around to room 27, I unlocked the door. There was the bed. I texted Tracy, room 27, come and get me. The cop who arrested me was an attractive black woman with a square jaw and bemused eyes. Her name was Trinita Ohakim. I remember it from the trial, Ohakim. She handcuffed me while the two other cops, both men, looked on smirking. 
They did not take their job seriously. Or maybe they just thought I was the butt of a joke. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't. I couldn't even feel enough at that moment to cry. I said, may I go to the bathroom? You'll have to wait, Officer Hakim said. I can't, I said. Really, I think I'm going to piss on the seat of your car. She, un- she uncuffed me, and the other cops led me to the bathroom and stared at me while I unzipped my pants and took out my pathetic dick. We stood there in silence while I tried to piss. You want me to turn on some water, he said. Sure, I said. Behind me, water splashed against the sink. They put me in the back of Officer Hawkins' car. The seat was hot and smelled like old plastic. As she drove, I said, I wasn't looking for underage girls. She didn't say anything for a while. I wasn't sure she'd even heard me. When we stopped at a light, she leaned to her left as she was looking, as if she was looking at something in the seat beside her. She said, you specified high school girls. The light turned green. I looked down at my clothes, jeans fresh out of laundry, a red button up. I had picked them out because I thought Tracy would find me attractive in them. My face burned. Were you the one writing the post? I asked. Yes, she said. I looked out the window. We were turning down my street. Wait, why are we here? I asked her. I broke out in a sweat. Oh, Jesus, please don't do this. Tears surged to my eyes, but I held them back. Please, officer. We have to seize your computer, she said. Is your wife still at home? They knew I was married. Of course they knew I was married. This was happening. There was no warning. This was happening now. I started to cry. Not hard, not sobbing, but there was no sucking it in. Yes, I sputtered. We stopped, and one of the cops in the car behind us walked up to Officer Hawkham's window. He asked her, the wife at home? Yeah, she said. He left and walked up the path to the door of our apartment and knocked. I looked away when the door opened. After a moment, Officer Hawkham said, she wants to see your face, sir. I turned. My wife was standing in our apartment doorway looking around the officer. When she saw me, she put her hand to her mouth and started crying. He had to help her steady herself against the doorframe. She looked fat. Pathetic, stupid. I know because I caused her to look that way. She had been sitting at the kitchen table looking like a regular person just minutes before, and then a police officer knocked on her door and told her that her husband was under arrest for soliciting sex from a minor. I'd been gone from the house 35 minutes. I followed her inside. A few minutes later, he came back outside carrying my laptop. My wife came up to the door and looked at me. She put her hand to her mouth just as she had before just as if it was happening all over again. I was convicted, but I got released early after 13 months. First time offender, crowded jails. My lawyer argued that I was an idiot, but not a monster, and added that I'd already lost my wife and my job when the story hit the papers. The judge gave me an ass chewing and told me to get out of his face and make damn sure I never came back. I'm on parole for five years, and I have to register as a sex offender everywhere I live for basically the rest of my life. Because I can't reside within 600 feet of anywhere kids play or go to school, I live out on the edge of the city. I sleep in a lean-to under an overpass. My only neighbors are two weepy child molesters and an 80-year-old man who did 60 years in prison for multiple rape charges. Now that I have no friends, I spend my days talking to myself in my lean-to, obsessing over everything that fell apart. I don't know how accurate my memory is anymore, though. I thought about it so much. It's like a picture that's faded and crumbling at the edges. When I can work, I do day labor. Lately, I've been doing this job, sitting in this booth in a car lot. It's a sweltering little boss, little box. The boss doesn't allow us to watch TV or read, the clock, read on the clock, so I sit here and sweat for eight hours. It's not hard work. In fact, it isn't really work. Work would at least feel like something. This is just an endless nothing. I sit here and sweat and wait for nothing. Two days ago, near the end of my shift, I was sitting here sweating when I saw Officer Hawkins. She was with a guy. They pulled into my lot and parked and walked out past my box on their way to the restaurant next door. The guy was a handsome man with amber skin and a shaved head. He wore a suit. Officer Hawkins wore a navy blue dress. Looked like a first date to me. As they walked past me, the man was laughing and was saying, I am for sure Roxy never said any such thing about you. Officer Hakim giggled. Well, you're for sure wrong. The man glanced at me and nodded. I nodded back. Officer Hakim looked at me, smiled politely, and then when my face clicked for her, she stopped smiling. She stared down at her toenails. They were painted bright blue. She and the man walked to the sidewalk. 
And waiting for the light to turn, far enough away that I could not hear, she leaned over and told him the only thing about me that anyone remembers anymore. Thank you. Another heartwarming story. Um, so we are a little over it for time, but we want to make sure that Frank gets up here. I'm going to read his bio really quick. Frank Wheeler Jr. is a fiction writer and reviewer. He is the author of two novels, The Wowser from Thomas and Mercer in 2012 and The Good Life from New Pulp Press in 2014. He lives with his wife, Marie, in Wisconsin. Frank Wheeler Jr. Okay, this is uh, my book, the uh, not the Wowser, the Good Life. Uh, came out in August. Uh, let's see, we've got Earl, also known as Junior, Sheriff of uh, Linden, Nebraska. <clears throat> Mikey follows me back to Linden. I can see him talking on a cell in my mirror, so I reduce my speed to 75. That's an add-on uh, ticket if he gets pulled over for speeding, and he doesn't need anything else to piss him off today. I drop off my truck at the sheriff's station and get in his car. We're supposed to meet Eddie now and talk over what happened with Howie, then see Dad. That's a huge step for Mikey. i got to pick up my kid later, so this needs to be quick, Mikey says to me when we get to the truck stop. You don't need me for this, right? Leave it running, I say, slamming the door. Junior, you owe me lunch, Eddie says when I walk into the south of town truck stop diner. Like pizza, kid? You're late, you pay for it. Mikey threw a hissy fit, I say. Had to calm him down. That boy's gonna fuck this up yet, Eddie says. I sit down and take a 20 out of my wallet, set it on the table, motion the waitress. Glass of water and a basket of fries, I say. You ain't eating, Eddie says. In a hurry, I say. Sides, Mikey ruined my appetite. That fucking kid's... Eddie doesn't finish his sentence. The door to the diner opens as a waitress walks by. A Caucasian man in a torn blue denim jacket with a buzz cut and a tattoo on his neck walks in, raising up a sawed-off 12-gauge pump from under his jacket. Eddie can see from my face something's wrong and shifts his weight to move out of his seat. I clear the pistol from my holster, but without even a second to aim, I just squeeze the trigger fast in its direction twice. One hits. Blood bursts out of his left thigh. He staggers, and his shotgun goes off. Eddie's arm is braced on the outside of the table. To move his weight as he stands, the blast rips it away above the elbow. The heat from it, uh, the heat from it shuts my eyes, and the force shakes my whole frame. Eddie's forearm bumps my chest and lands in my lap. Eddie falls back in his seat as the man behind him grabs at his leg and drops the shotgun. I move out of the booth and let Eddie's half-limb fall under the table. My instinct is to shoot the perp twice through the, uh, twice through the central nervous system, but people are watching. The waitress, a few customers, they're in shock. They'll tell what they saw. Can't fire if he's dropped his gun. And I want to know who sent him. Now the shooter's leaning back against a stool at the counter, screaming about the pain in his leg. Eddie's looking at his stump, moving his mouth, trying to say something. 9-11, I yelled at the waitress. Now! That's when people in the diner start screaming. I close the distance to the shooter, put my boot in his stomach, crack him over the back of the head with my Glock when he doubles over, force him onto his stomach and slap my cuffs on one wrist. He starts fighting when he feels the click. I slam the heel of my hand down into his bicep a few times to numb him, then force his whole arm behind his back, click on his other wrist. I take off my belt and make a loop. Hold still, I say in Eddie's ear. Blood is free-flowing from his stump and filling out the tabletop, spreading up under our plates and soaking into our napkins. I pull the loop tighter on the wound. Blood swells from the slivers of flesh, then stops completely. I wrap the belt around it several times and tie it off. I'm not in uniform now, so I move back over to Eddie's shoulder and click his radio. He's convulsing. 
Officer down, I yelled at dispatch. Highway diner on 81 south of town. One armed suspect neutralized. Possibly more suspects. Send back up now. This is Sheriff Hack. Get to it. With one hand, I hold the binding around Eddie's arm. With the other, I am the Glock of the shooter. The shot must have broken his femur because he can't move his leg when he tries to wiggle around to get up. He screams again. There's a lot of blood around him. Please, Jesus Christ, God damn it, I need help. I'm going to fucking die, God damn it, I say. Only have so many hands, fucker. Thank you. All right, so you just heard from, well, you heard a lot of things. You heard Jay Kingston introduce Noir at the Bar Chicago. You heard me and Rob wax eloquent about stuff like we do. Then you heard Kevin Lynn Helmick with Number 7 Valentine um, from the Noir at the Bar 2 anthology. Um, I would like to say, listeners, that that was all me that got Kevin. <laughs> in, the, in the middle where he stops, he goes, I can't believe you, got, you fuckers got me to read this. Yeah. I am you fuckers. He... Livia says, you fuckers. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I want to say, I know at the beginning of the episode, we said we said we kind of put these together out of order uh, for the sake of having episodes that are approximately the same amount of time and everything. But I want to say, if you listen, once you hear the second episode, and if you listen to Jake Hinkson's story and, and Sam Reeves, I figured there's a little bit of just breaking it up so that there's a level of like, ups and downs that are that are pretty similar because I mean, while while Sam's story which you will hear on the next episode is is not a downer um it's not as entertaining or or outlandish as as maybe Kevin Helmick or or Kent Gowran so I think we mix it up a little bit for the sake yeah. of content as well I just do what I'm told Yeah I move things around on the page and Livia says okay yeah, I, 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 you know what? You guys know me. I don't even remember what order anybody read in. I don't even remember being at the event. Well, uh, I'm kidding. Who could forget Kevin Helmick's story, number seven, Valentine from uh, the Noir the Bar Two anthology? You know that is. I gotta tell you, I because I, I do have a terrible memory. So although I remember the reading from a week ago, that's the only story I remember from Noir at the Bar Two. Like if you said, you know, tell tell me something <laughs> about one story. Number seven, Valentine, is the one that I would tell you about. It does have a, some very some memorable moments, and the dialogue, man, he just does that, you know, femme fatale, hard boiled kind of thing really well in this story, and not necessarily just in this story. Kel- Kevin Helmick has a good voice to his stories. Is what I'm going to say. You know, it's weird though because this one is really out of character for him. I think because I've read a bunch right. of his stuff. Um, yeah. I kind of, I kind of wish a little bit he'd do more of this. Not that I dislike the other stuff, but it'd be nice to get that little once-in-a-while little out-there story from him. Yeah. Speaking of out-there stories, um, man, ripped from the headlines, Jay Kingston with um, Casual Encounter. <laughs> that was, uh, was kind of interesting, huh? Man, that was. I was talking to Jake after the, the reading, and I was telling him, like, the, you get through about 60% of that story, and you're thinking, this could go either way. This could be funny, or it could be really, really dark. And then there's this one break in the moment where you're like, oh, damn, it went dark. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, really good story. Um, I really dig Hinkson's style. Yeah, um, Hell on Church Street was absolutely excellent. And uh, I, I'm pretty good feeling you're going to hear us review some more Jake Hinkson here in the very near future. I snatched up three of his books at the reading. I got um, St. Yeah, Homicide. Yeah. And uh, the posthumous man, and the big ugly, which just came out. Oh, oh! You didn't get a copy of Hell on Church Street. Uh, you know what? Somebody beat me to the last one because they're a son of a bitch. <laughs> I look up there and I go, "Hey, is that the only copy of that?" And he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "How much?" Because <laughs> I'm buying it before Rob gets a chance to. You dirty bitch! I know, I know. I have moments of dirty bitchiness. <laughs> And rounding out the trio tonight was Frank Wheeler Jr., who read from The Wowser. Um, he had to run a little short. So, again, this is all out of kind of time context. But uh, 
He only read for a little over six minutes because we way overstayed our our welcome. And when I say that, um, there was a band, uh, bands, plural, I believe, playing right after our reading. So we ran a little long. Apologies to Mr. Wheeler Jr. for uh, for not having um, as long of a time as he may have wanted. But but if you do want to hear a longer run on Frank Wheeler Jr. reading from The Wowser and The Good Life, check out our Noir at the Bar Milwaukee episode. Yeah, uh, he was in that Noir at the Bar Milwaukee thing, and he did read for uh, longer, and he read from... So this was a story from... this. I think it was The Good Life uh, is what he read from this time, but um, he read a little bit from The Good Life and a little bit from his other book, The Wowzer, too. He did like a few little cuts, so yeah, check out that episode to get that. Are they coming for you, Rob? <laughs> I was trying to cut it off. That's goddamn noir for you right there. That's noir. We can't even talk about these guys without having the police show up. Sirens everywhere. Oh, that's the one thing. All right, so that was one thing that I was really excited about. We, Because I live in the city, there's always sirens going on when we're recording. And um, we're at the event, and um, it was Kent Gowron. He was the first reader. And it's like two minutes into his reading, and then there's like sirens, and an ambulance goes past. And I was like, yep, this is booked. Yep. It ain't a podcast if you don't have some kind of sirens. That's right. All right, so tomorrow, I think, um, you'll get more <laughs> part two of Noir at the Bar Chicago. Um, but before we go, Rob, it's the holiday season. Do you have all your all your Christmas shopping done? Um, most of my most of my uh, creative effort went into uh, the gift uh, exchange for the Christmas episode that we had recently. Um, I did buy the rest of my family's gifts. Yeah, so I'm pretty much done. You know what I was thinking makes a great a great holiday gift. What? A Patreon subscription to Booked. <laughs> so I was uh, thinking like, about this. You buy it for yourself? Yeah, you could buy it for yourself, but you could buy it for someone else, too. So, really, you could just go to patreon.com slash booked, become a contributor to the podcast, and you could gift that username and password to somebody else. Because currently, you know, Patreon subscribers are getting booked episodes one day before anybody else, at least one day before anybody else. At least. And who knows what else that we're given to those people. Yeah, we should really figure that out, huh? Um, like exclusive uh, Christmas pictures of Livius. That, that's, that's, that, yes. That, that happened. There is that, mm-hmm, yep. Is that up on the actual page? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I haven't looked. I looked. Was it yesterday? Maybe it was yesterday. And it wasn't up there. Or I can't figure out how to see them. Uh, Either way. Doesn't know how to look, so. Yeah, so um, so there's that. But there will be more bonus content, I believe, in the month of January. That's right. January, we're just going to rain uh, exclusive gifts down on our contributors. So it is the time. Now's the time. Throw it in as a Christmas gift. Not only will people get early access to our podcast episodes, they're going to get all the weird extra content like pictures of Livius in a Santa hat. Where are those extra? Where are those pictures of Livius in a Santa hat again? Patreon.com slash booked. Got it. Okay. Tomorrow we'll be hearing from Kent Gowran and Sam Reeves. Until then, I'm Livius Nedden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.